Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to meet with you today and praise our awesome God. How wonderful that God is in this place and in us that he fills us with his spirit and puts a joy in our hearts to worship him and seek his face. Uh, yeah, what an awesome God. So a couple of announcements. We do have a barbecue coming up in two weeks' time, so Sunday week. We will be sticking around afterwards for a barbecue, so you are invited. Please hang out and attend that. Um, and also just thank you for your service, for financial gifts, for prayer, for the support of one another. It is awesome to see the Lord and his love at work in and through you guys. So praise him for uh, just doing his work in our midst, and we get to rejoice and celebrate him and how blessed we are to have one another. So I wanted to uh, say that today. Um, yeah, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good, that you are faithful to us all, that you are the faithful God. You are our creator, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who caused light to shine in the darkness, the one who gives us a living hope through Jesus Christ. And I thank you for our brothers and sisters meeting here and across the world, uh, just adoring you in awe of your majesty and your glory. And Lord, we extol you, we magnify you today, and ask that as we speak forth your word, as we read it, that we would hear it, and it would be fruitful in our lives, and our fruit would remain for your glory. And we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to gather together, to enjoy fellowship one with another, and to hear from the living God. And I pray that we would be your faithful, humble servants, who hear and obey and who rejoice to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 37 is where we are today. From a young age, we are individuals. We start getting our personal preferences at a young age. Uh, and really, we have preferences because we have limited experience and limited accessibility and availability. Like when we choose our favorite, like as a kid, you, it feels like a rite of passage, you have to choose your favorite color, right? I'm like, why choose a favorite color? They, they're all great. Maybe some not as good as others, but uh, your favorite animal, it's based upon the animals you've heard of, or maybe the pet you have, or what you saw in a video or read about in a book. Like, you, so you form a preference based upon your limited information. And we start to grow in our preference of food and drink and activities and music. We prefer one and we choose to not listen to another kind. Uh, and we have our favorite artists and athletes and sports. And like, oh, sport, no, I'd rather a book. We have different, different views and preferences. And our favoritism flourishes because of our limited knowledge and our limited amount of time. Like we can't do everything all the time. And so we have to choose what is a priority. But see, God, because he's outside of time, because he is infinite in power and ability, he does not have a preference. He, is not, he does not show favoritism or partiality because he is able to treat everyone as if they are his favorite. He's not limited in his resources. I think about Mary, that she was highly favored to be chosen of God to carry Jesus Christ but every person in the world is even more favored to receive Jesus by faith and be born again. Because having the king of kings enthroned in our hearts is better than carrying him in utero for a season. Because that's forever. 
So we see that God lavishes his favor upon everyone and how great, how great he is to do so. Last week we did a, a genealogy of Esau. We touched on some portions of that chapter, but now we've moved to the narrative of Jacob and it begins to follow through Joseph. We've talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now it moves more to focusing on his life, Joseph. Now he was the oldest son of Rachel, Jacob's wife who passed away. And because of the deceit of his father-in-law, uh, Jacob married sisters who were rivals, Rachel and Leah. And we see that he had a favorite, right? He preferred, he loved Rachel. And we see this sibling rivalry um, even back to Cain and Abel, right? Cain, he was not received by God, and so his sacrifice was rejected, while Abel was accepted by God, and thus his sacrifice was. And so he was envious and killed his brother. We see it with uh, Jacob and Esau, that, Jake, uh, yeah, that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So it's this rivalry, this favoritism, this partiality is nothing new. Uh, and we'll see that despite the judgment of God through the flood, that man, mankind's heart remained the same, showing favoritism, and it leads to problems. We always see that sin begets sin. It always increases. But by God's grace, he, I, I loved all the songs we sung today because they so fit what we're going to talk about in this passage. So Genesis 37, verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. We've read that Isaac, he passed away, and Jacob continued to live in the land of Canaan that God promised to give them and their uh, children after them as a possession. And we read of Joseph, the 11th of 12 brothers, and when he was 17 years old, he was feeding the flock with his brothers. And this tells me that Joseph was a young man accustomed to labor, uh, with his brothers who kept his father's flocks. And he was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. That's Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And Joseph, he reported back to his father and gave a bad report. Now, this took guts. Because we know Jacob's brothers are not to be trifled with. Remember what Simeon and Levi did when their sister was taken advantage of and raped. They went and killed all the men of Shechem. And so, the, and these younger brothers, they were not angels, right? They learned something from their older brothers, and they were a rough crowd, as we'll see. We're not told what Joseph said, but what we see in his character that's consistent is he feared God, he was hardworking, and trustworthy. He was not a favorite of his brothers, but he was the favorite of his father, Jacob, because he was the son of his old age. He was the answer to years of prayer that they had prayed. Rachel wanted to give me children or I die. God heard her prayers and Joseph was the answer. Now, perhaps in some families, kids suspect, 
that their brother or sister is the favored one of their parents. They're like, hmm, you know, when I was that age, I didn't get to do that. Or look, they gave her a car for her birthday and I got, you know, a Rubik's cube. It seems like something's off with this picture. In Jacob's household, there was no doubt he was the favorite. He wore it with this coat, this tunic of many colors that his father gave him and didn't give anybody else. And this gift created a rift between Joseph and his brothers because every time they saw him, they knew that, oh, here he is, the favorite of the father, just gets whatever he wants. And they saw it. They noticed it. Jacob didn't seem to notice the rift that he had created, the the division within his own family, or he didn't care. I don't know. But it says his brothers, because of the favoritism, that they could not speak peaceably to him or could not speak shalom to him. They could not wish him well. They could not bless him in any of his tasks. They did not offer to help him. They were at war in themselves against him because of hatred and envy. Now, Jacob could have given them all the same designer tunic. But the problem of sinful partiality was in his heart. Being partial since Joseph was a son of old age is no different than favoring the rich or poor. We read this in James 2.1 where he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. You should not be partial to one and choose them and exclude others to show favoritism. So that means we should not have racism, bigotry, nepotism, cronyism. That is not the, the way of Christ. It is to, we do not show partiality. Instead, we owe everyone to love them. Genesis 37, verse five. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This partiality, it bred an atmosphere of hatred, bitterness, and disdain from his 10 older brothers. First, he had this coat that distinguished him from the rest. And then he has a dream that elevates him above the rest. Where he's like, hey guys, check out this dream. We were all working in the field. We're tying up grain and my sheaf just stood up and all your sheaves bowed down before it. And they're like, what? We would never submit to that. That is offensive to us. And they, they hated him because of his dreams and his words. They were disgusted to see him and they hated having to tolerate him. They hated having to listen to him. And this favoritism, it negatively influenced their impression of him so he could do no right. He could only do wrong. Now the problem wasn't Joseph's fashion choices or his words or his dreams, but the hatred in their heart. That's where the problem was and this drew it out of them. Verse nine, then he dreamed still another dream and he told it to his brothers said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? 
Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Joseph had another dream. Despite having some negative reactions, he is undeterred. He shares his dream again. And the dream was so outlandish that even Jacob rebuked his son. And he says, in my dream, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to me. He's like, what kind of dream is this? Do you have a God complex or something? Shall your father, your mother, and your brothers all bow down to you? Because it was a very patriarchal society. It was just unheard of that the elder would serve the younger. How could this be? How could you even think that? Why would you say that? Who are you to dream such things? Now his brothers, they wanted their father's affections. They wanted that coat. They wanted a place of honor. But his father, it said he heard it. He rebuked him, but then he continued to think about it. He liked to just tucked it away. He wasn't exactly sure what it meant, but it impacted him. It reminds me of Luke's gospel where it says Mary kept in her heart the things told to her through the shepherds who came, right? She had a baby, the son of God. She laid him in a manger and suddenly these shepherds that had not received a birth um, notification from her, they just rock up and they worship the child having been led there by angels who met them in the field. And so the things that they told her, she's like, wow, I don't fully comprehend what this means, but I'm gonna hide that in my heart. And later she did the same thing when Jesus remained in Jerusalem and Joseph and Mary after three days found him speaking and debating with the lawyers and the uh, priests in the temple. It says she hid all these things in her heart. She, she filed it away, considered it, didn't forget it. Verse 12. Then his fathers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Excuse me, brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. The day comes now when Jacob's sons, they go to feed his father's flocks at their property in Shechem. Now, this should be like alarm bells for us because remember what happened in Shechem. They had killed all the men and they had taken all the property, all the, they had pillaged all their belongings, right? They, they took them. And so it makes sense that Jacob would be like, you know, I haven't heard from those boys in a while. Why don't you go check on them in Shechem? Check on the welfare of your brothers and of the flocks and then give me word of how things are going. Hebron to Shechem, about 80 Ks. That's a very solid two-day walk to go all that way. And that, that tells me that Jake, Joseph was a dependable and capable young man. He was the favorite of his father, but he was not coddled for no overprotective father since his son unaccompanied on an 80-kilometer walk. They wouldn't do that. They would send the servant to do that. But no, he sends his son because he trusted him to bring him an a honest word without protest, without hesitation, even knowing his brothers were not 
favorable towards him. Like Joseph was not dumb. He knew that they didn't like him, but he said, here I am. You want me to go? I'll go. And so he goes all this way. And so when he arrived in Shechem, he didn't find them where he expected to. He went to the family property and he's looking around and it says some man sees him wandering in the field. He's like, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Do you know where they've gone? And he's very polite. Please, will you tell me? And he says, based on a conversation, they've gone to Dothan, which is 24 Ks north. So a longer walk, another day. And he went where he eventually found them. Now, my daddy never sent me on an 80K journey. The place he often sent me was to his toolbox or to his truck to fetch something he needed when we were working. We're doing a little plumbing job or a little, uh, my dad does all kinds of, of handyman work as a carpenter. And he would describe the tool. So this is when I was a little kid. He'd describe what it was. He's like, it looks like this. It has this color of handles. It's going to be in the box, second shelf on the right-hand side. And as a kid, you would go, okay, here's the box. And you're looking, and I don't see it. And there were a few times where I went back and said, I can't find it. It's not there. And he's like, show me. And he would walk to the exact spot he said it was. And guess what? It was right there. And that was like the walk of shame to a kid. You're like, oh, all right, next time I am going to like double, triple check. I am not going to leave this truck until I know that it's not there. And you get better. You start learning. You get disciplined to, to just, instead of just having a quick glance because you're wanting to do something else, you, you take time and you think about it. The fact that Joseph did not just turn around when he didn't find his brothers just didn't come straight home to Hebron to the comfort of his tent. It shows me he was disciplined. He was determined to do what his father said. Even if it meant walking another day, he was going to get the job done. Jesus, he told his followers to go the extra mile when you're compelled to go one. He went an extra 15 miles to do what his father said. And I think if we would take such effort to please our father, our dads, when you're fetching a tool from the garage or going on this long walk to check on your brothers in Shechem, how much more should we want to please our heavenly father and do what he has told us to do with joy? So let's be disciplined. Let's develop that. Let's cultivate that in going beyond just an obligation like, oh, I've got to do this. Like it's a chore or a duty, but it's a joy to serve the living God, our father who has called us by name. Genesis 37, verse 18. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. As Joseph is walking to meet his brothers, at a great distance, he is conspicuously recognizable in his coat of many colors. He was like a target. They see him coming, and they go, there's that dreamer. Hmm. 
and they suggested they kill him. And they're like, that received broad support. Good idea. Yeah, we'll kill him. We'll just say a wild beast ate him and we'll throw him in a pit. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. Wow, these are pretty rough brothers. I'm grateful my brother was not like this. Maybe you guys had brothers like this, but I didn't. But Reuben, he hears it and steps in. He prevents bloodshed. Now, he hated Joseph as much as anybody, but he had a sense of obligation to protect his brother and to return him safely back home to their father in Hebron. He says, hey, now let's not kill him. He is our brother. We'll just chuck him in a pit, leave him there to die. But his motive was like, well, when they're not looking, I'll go and I'll pull him out and then we'll take him home, make sure he's safe. These guys are ruthless cutthroats. They want to kill their brother and they would have unless Reuben had said something. Hatred of Joseph, it reminds me of how Jesus said he was hated without a cause. Like, we don't see Joseph, and it's going to be tough for us. I, I encourage you to just try to put out of your mind the, maybe like the, the cartoons you've seen about Joseph or the Bible stories that you've, you've seen. But just to, say, to think about what the Bible is saying and, and maybe cull some of those assumptions that we've had about who Joseph was and, and how he lived. But to, to just look at the word and what it says. Like, Joseph didn't do anything wrong. He was a 17-year-old kid who spoke his mind. He was favored of his father and hated by his brothers. But Jesus, he came. He did nothing wrong. He only did the will of his father in heaven. He always spoke the truth in love, and yet he was hated by the very people he came to save. Hours before he was betrayed and arrested in Gethsemane, he said in John 15, 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Jacob's coat, his father's favorite, made him a target of his envious brothers. Jesus was also delivered to, the, uh, to Pilate and the Romans out of envy. It wasn't because he had really blasphemed. It's because they were envious of his, his authority and his power and the favor that he had with the people. Envy is so subtle, it's good for us to ensure that our hearts are free from it. Because envy, it's shown by discontent in the success of others. Those who are superior in excellence, reputation, prosperity, we see them succeeding and something in us bristles. It fosters a desire to cut down others and to celebrate their loss, like right on. They're getting what they deserve feeling good about it. Spurgeon wrote on the subject, envy shoots at others, but it hits itself. The envious man is his own tormentor. He feeds and cherishes a viper which preys upon his own soul. In contrast to this, the followers of Jesus were to love one another even if someone seems to benefit from partiality. Okay, so they are favored. So they do have the corner office when they don't really deserve it. But They've got the promotion. They get the accolades. All right. But we still should love them. We can still celebrate the favor they've received because we have received favor of our king by grace. We've received the grace of God and therefore we give the grace of God. And so it's good for us to examine ourselves. Do I celebrate others' success when they're promoted? When our team loses 
and their team wins and they rub our faces in it when they taunt us. And like I admit as a kid, I would see someone go down with a knee injury. I'm like, that gives our team a better chance to win. So that's actually good. Well, that was actually bad, right? That is not compassionate. That is not caring. That is not loving. That is selfish and envious, greedy. So when people you dislike or have offended you, when they're in trouble, does that please you? Are you annoyed when they are complimented or they are recognized? Now, tall poppy syndrome, it exists to this day. Be sure wherever it is found, envy and pride are not absent. And so Joseph's brothers, they decide, we're taking him out. We're going to leave him to die. Now, Joseph, he has just gone on this 100-kilometer walk. He's relieved to find his brothers, and I think that relief and joy was very short-lived because they roughed him up, they ripped that tunic off of him, and they throw him into a pit, into a dry well. Now, whether this pit was naturally formed, this cistern, whether it was dug, it would have collected water during the rainy seasons, but at this point, it was dry, and it was a pit big enough and deep enough that he couldn't get out on his own. He needed help. So he's stuck in this pit. It's like he had had a strained relationship with his brothers at the best of times, but now this is a new low. He's been stripped naked. He's been thrown into a pit, and when he hit the ground with a thud, He was just coming to grips with feelings of betrayal. He was obeying his father. He was only doing what was right. And yet he had been treated so poorly, so hatefully. And it was very apparent that those closest to him had evil intentions. There was no friendliness. There was no love. There was no comfort. They just beat him up, stripped him, and threw him in this pit. Now, I can say... I would think the emotional pain would be far worse than his grazes, his bruises, his cuts. And I can say that I've never had any experience like this from family, friends, or strangers. But maybe you have. It's possible you have experienced worse than this. You have been betrayed. And I am so sorry for that. There is a person, though, who knows how you feel. And his name is Jesus Christ. Because he was brutalized. He was wounded. He was punched. He was stripped. He was crucified and he was killed when he only did good in the eyes of the father. Now, whether we are the betrayer or the one who was betrayed, we have a living hope in Jesus who's risen from the dead and he lives. So when we look to the offense, when we look to our own pain, we find ourselves in a pit But when we look to Jesus, we see him risen, living and strong to save, and a hope that's beyond us. The Savior who opened the eyes of those born blind and caused them to see, he is able to put love and joy in your heart again. The one who cleansed lepers with the word is able to free us from the bondage of shame and guilt that we're experiencing And whether we're the victims or the perpetrators of such abuse, there's a new start for anyone who places their faith in Jesus today and asks for help. He is a helper. He is a savior. He is a deliverer.
verse 25, and they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Those are some hard hearts in those brothers. It's like, well, let's eat. Hearts hardened by hatred and envy. They throw him into the pit and they sit down to eat a meal. And they felt justified in their harsh treatment of their brother because they hated him. And I just think it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that God gives us the capacity to feel, to think, and to consider the feelings of others, yet we can be very cruel. People can be unfeeling. No thought of others just for themselves. Hey, I'm hungry. While they, their brother's crying in a pit. And as they're eating, Joseph's brothers, they notice the caravan of Ishmaelites coming by and Judah's like, well, what good is it to us to just kill our brother and conceal his blood? We can make some money out of this. And then, and then our hands aren't on him. We're not guilty of anything. We'll enrich ourselves and we're done with him. There's no profit if he just dies in this pit, but we can make some money off him. So let's sell him as a slave. Now, in the passage, we see that the Ishmaelites and Midianites are used interchangeably, likely because it was a mixed group. And they sold them for 20 shekels of silver. The modern-day equivalent's about 220 Aussie. So if they split each of their earnings from this transaction, it's about $22 each for the life of their brother. Coins jingling in their pocket. And their brother led away. Now, one thing that stands out to me, and I don't know if it does to you, but to me, is Joseph's silence. He's been talking a lot until this point, but he doesn't say anything during this whole time. We don't read of him struggling, fighting, or trying to run away, but we can know from later in Genesis, however, that he did plead for his life. Now, I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. This is the kind of spoiler you should listen to, not one like, okay, don't tell me. In due time, God would make Joseph the chief of Egypt under Pharaoh. And a time came when his brothers presented themselves before him. But Joseph, by this time, he's dressed up in Egyptian uh, clothing as a ruler. He's speaking roughly to them through an interpreter. And they didn't recognize him at all because 20 years had passed. Now, he had learned and spoke the language they spoke in Egypt. But his brothers, as foreigners, they conferred among themselves and he understood them because he spoke Hebrew like they did. Turning your Bibles to Genesis 42, starting in verse 21, we see what they talked about, and they give us some insight into what happened on that awful day. Genesis 42, 21. It says, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. 
So 20 years in the future, they're having this conversation. They've been pulled into the principal's office, so to speak. They've been pulled into the office of this ruler who's grilling them about why they're there in Egypt. And they say, we're here because of what we did to our brother. We did listen to him when he begged for his life, when he pleaded with us, when he wept and he said, don't do it. We didn't listen. And Reuben's like, his blood is upon us. They roughed him up. They're thinking he's dead because he's been carried away to slavery in a foreign land. And now we've got to pay for it. And Joseph heard that and he wept. He went to the other room because he hadn't been forgotten. He saw in 20 years that he had changed and they had changed. Their hatred towards him had changed and it moved him. They couldn't change the past but there had been a change in them and providentially God had made his plans and purpose come to pass by making Joseph a leader to save many people alive and it was them. It was for their salvation and of their household. So what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's just like mind blown how God does this. Genesis 37, 29. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped a, the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Seems that Reuben wasn't around when uh, Joseph was sold to those traders. And he had suggested throwing him in a pit with the intent to pull him out of the pit. And he's shocked when he casually dropped by and, you know, he's thinking about pulling him out. He's like, where is he? Not a trace. What's going to happen to me? What should I do now? And so they fabricate a cover-up, right? He tears his clothes. It's an expression of grief and mourning. He felt responsible to protect his brother, but he, he failed, and what had happened could not be undone. And so they tried to cover it up by taking Joseph's tunic, roughing it up, killing an animal, and putting the blood of that kid of the goats, and sent it to their father and saying, hey, do you know whose this is? We're not sure if it's Joseph's or not. That's it. Now, when Jacob saw the condition, he sees the blood, he sees the rips and the tears. He's like, oh, no. My son is dead. No one could have survived this. Some wild beast has met him in the way and killed him. And Jacob, he has this incredible grief, likely personal guilt that he had sent his son to his death that he was partially or wholly responsible for not sending someone with him. 
that it was at his command he had gone and he had died and he had to live with that for the rest of his life. And he wept, it says he, he cried, he, he put on sackcloth, he refused the comfort of anyone and he, he was resigned to grieving him until he died. He's like, I'm gonna go down to my grave mourning. My, the rest of my life is going to only be grief because of what has happened to my son. And so the deception of the brothers, look at the sorrow they heaped upon their own father. And they knew it. Selfishness and envy, it working to harden them to be cruel without compassion. Our eyes are easily drawn to the flaws, blemishes, what's not right in the world, what's not right in our lives. I think about our cars, right? It's like, we, instead of being happy that your car has a uniform coat of paint, we can be very annoyed and frustrated over one deep scratch, right? So you see this car, you know, when you wash your car, and you're like, well, what happened here? So you're not focused on the fact that the car is in good condition, but there's this scratch. Where did that come from? Who did that? Why didn't they leave a note? Or what did I do? We can look back upon a season of life with sadness because of a bad thing that's happened or a regrettable thing we've done. And our natural focus is like Reuben, to, to look at ourselves and say, what do I do? What's gonna happen to me now? We can focus on what's gone wrong rather than focusing on God his grace and goodness to us. And I don't want to any way dismiss the hurt and pain and grief you've suffered. But the point is, since God can change us and does change us by the gospel, since he does change our eternal destination from hell where we deserve to heaven, that's a gift of his grace, he can also change our perspective. He can change our outlook and the way we think about things. A, way that different, a different way of seeing people. Rather than looking upon their faults, we begin to look upon them with the love that God has shed abroad upon our hearts. Now, while we can find comfort in being hated as Jesus is hated, we can also be joyful that we are loved by him, which is far better in my mind. Knowing you're loved by him, that's what helps us to endure those difficult seasons. Now, when we live in this world, we are, everyone who lives in this world has been victimized by sin. Much of our troubles, our pains, they can be self-inflicted. It's like Joseph, he was sold into slavery. He had no control over that. But his brothers, they had already sold themselves into the slavery of envy and hatred and violence. Right? They hated him. They wanted him dead. Everyone in the story was in a pit of sorts. We've got Joseph, who was thrown into a literal pit. We've got his brothers, spiritually in a pit of hatred. Jacob, in a pit of grief. The only hope for deliverance for any of them was through looking to God in faith. Because he is the one who can pull us out. He is the one who delivers. That's what he does. He is a savior. It's not something that he does. It's who he is. Jesus Christ is a savior. He is a deliverer. He hears when we cry and he answers. Now, I don't know, because I don't know if you're in a pit today, why you're in that pit, if you were thrown into that pit, or it's by choice that you have tumbled in there, or why you're stuck there, but the, the 
Scripture is very clear. The Lord can deliver us. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 40, starting in verse 1. One thing that I love in our fellowship is we, we pray with one another. And, and we don't have people set apart as like a, a I guess, a, an authorized prayer partner to go to. Because really, that's what we all should be doing as believers, is praying with one another, encouraging and supporting each other. But I do make myself available, the elders, the worship team, and people in the fellowship, just to pray. If this, if this hits home for you and where you're at, um, pray with people today. Pray that the Lord would draw you out and that you would look to him. Psalm 40, verse 1 it says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust the Lord. Think about being in that pit. It was a horrible pit. It was miry clay. It was something that you get stuck in and that sticks to you. Have you ever walked in mud and, and this clay? It's more than mud. It, it is sticky. It's hard to get off. And he's like in a pit of miry clay. He can't get out. And it's stuck to him. But what did he do? He waited for the Lord. God inclined. God was leaning towards him, waiting for him to speak. And then he reached down and he pulled him out, set his feet upon a rock, guided him in the way he should go, and then it's like, I have a new song in my mouth. A new perspective, new praise of God because of what he had done. And so it's our choice if we will choose to focus on the pit or how it's affected us or on our savior who hears us, who answers our prayers and delivers us. I mean, God has brought us into his family as his beloved children to serve him now and forever. And in Christ, we are the favored of the Father. He forgives us of sin, he heals us, and he clothes us with his righteousness. Jesus was stripped of his clothing and crucified so we could be clothed with righteousness and bring honor and glory to him that many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So he'll take the, the ashes of our betrayal and he'll give us the beauty of healing and life by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and this truth. Thank you that in this very powerful passage that you show us our need for you to change our perspective, to heal the hurts of our past, and to deliver us, Lord, from our own hatred and envy. That just is as natural for us as breathing. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, incline to our prayers, that you would hear our voice, that we would be honest and contrite before you and confess our need and ask you to help. And thank you, Lord, that we know you will because you are a helper. You are a savior and a deliverer. And we love you. We thank you again for your faithfulness to us, your grace and mercy that we can learn through the sufferings of others like Joseph and even his brothers and his father who suffered, for Jesus who suffered so that we can be delivered, that we can be healed and restored. And I pray that you would do that work in our hearts today by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.